But one in a certain place testified, saying, What is man that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man that thou visitest him? Thou madest him a little lower than the angels, thou crownedst him with glory and honor, and didst set him over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet, for in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we see not yet all things put under him. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he by the grace of God should taste death for every man. For it became him, for whom are all things and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons unto glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one, for which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee. And again I will put my trust in him, and again behold I and the children which God hath given me. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself hath suffered being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted. So far we read in the word of God this morning. Let's consider on the basis of that scripture and others like it, the instruction of Lord's Day 14 of the Heidelberg Catechism, which continues to break down our confession of faith in the Apostles' Creed, specifically our confession about God the Son. Question 35 asks, what is the meaning of these words? He was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary. That God's eternal Son, who is and continueth true and eternal God, took upon Him the very nature of man, of the flesh and blood of the Virgin Mary, by the operation of the Holy Ghost, that he might also be the true seed of David, like unto his brethren in all things, sin excepted. What profit dost thou receive by Christ's holy conception and nativity? That he is our mediator, and with his innocence and perfect holiness covers in the sight of God my sins, wherein I was conceived and brought forth. Beloved congregation in our Lord Jesus Christ, the subject of Lord's Day 14 is the conception and birth of Jesus, which begins what we call the steps of the humiliation of the Son of God. And what we must understand is that the birth of Jesus did not simply happen in a humiliating manner, although that's true. Jesus was born in a stable or in an environment like a stable, and he was laid in a manger where animals eat their straw. 
Jesus was ignored when he was born, even by the lowly people of the town of Bethlehem who shut him out of the inn. But what we must see is that the humiliation of the Son of God was not only in how he was born, but is the fact that he was born at all. The creator of the universe who formed Adam in the beginning out of the dust of the earth and breathed into him the breath of life now enters the uterus of one of Adam's daughters and comes into the world as a screaming baby. He was made like unto his brothers in all things, sin accepted, which was a tremendous humiliation for one who is in his own person the eternal and true God. And yet for us who believe in him, there's nothing more elevating than the truth of this humiliation of God the Son. For the result of this humiliation is that he is like us, our mediator, our Emmanuel, who walks with us, who knows us, who acts in love for us and dwells with us in our flesh. But more than that, he didn't come just to be like us or to walk with us or to know us. But as one of us, he came to accomplish our redemption and to deliver us from the guilt of our sin and its shame so that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in all things that pertain unto God. Beloved people of God, you know that the Son of God became flesh and is incarnate and dwelling among us. You know this, you've known it more than likely since you were a child. But do you believe it? Do you believe that God the Son, the Creator of the world, has been made like unto His brethren, like unto you, in all things, sin accepted. Let's consider the instruction of this Lord's Day. The theme is believing he is like his brothers. First, we'll see how he is like them. And then we're going to contrast the Son of God to us, and we will see how he is unlike his brothers. And then we'll conclude how the Lord's Day concludes by considering why this matters. Believing he is like his brethren how he is like them, how he is unlike them, and why it matters. Jesus is like his brethren, the Lord today says, because he took on their very flesh and blood. Now, I think there's a tendency when we hear the story of Jesus' conception and birth to sanitize that story a bit too much. We've connected this biblical story with Christmas time and the vibes of the holiday And holidays mean good feelings. And holidays mean nice, tidy, clean celebrations. The nativity scenes that people draw look so cute. Picture perfect. A healthy, sparkling baby with a halo on his head. And when you look at those nativity scenes... It's easy to forget that Jesus was born in something like a barn. 
and that the smell of manure and dirty straw was in the air when Jesus took his first breath as an infant, and that the Virgin Mary labored and travailed like any woman who is giving birth, and she did so without the benefit of clean sheets or a nursing staff or a doctor. And it's easy to forget that the baby who was born did not come out clean and tidy, but covered in afterbirth. Now, I don't want to be too, too gratuitous with the details. We know what it's like when a mother gives birth to a baby, and when a baby comes out into the world, it's not the kind of scene that we would normally describe as angelic or ideal. It's a scene of pain and labor. It's an event that in the past often resulted in death, either for the mother or for the child, or sometimes both. The labor of a mother in travail was an expression of the curse that God placed on man and woman after the fall into sin. These are God's words. Genesis 3, verse 16, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow shalt thou bring forth children, and in sorrow... The Virgin Mary labored and brought forth a child Jesus in Bethlehem in a stable. The birth of Jesus had to be that way due to the nature of the incarnation. There are many ways in which God the Son might have come down into this world in order to be with us. In fact, what happened in Bethlehem was not the first time that the person of the Son of God came to dwell with people for a time. Or in some form, the person of the Son of God came down to earth, for example, along with two other angels, to visit Abraham in the plains of Mamre and to have a feast and to announce that Sarah was going to have a child. The person of the Son of God appeared to Moses in a burning bush and declared to him his name, I am that I am, and announced that Moses was going to lead the people Israel out of Egypt. The person of the Son of God stood before Joshua as the captain of the host of Jehovah on the eve of the battle of Jericho. God the Son existed before Jesus Christ, the child, was ever born. And He was always intensely interested and involved in the life and development of the covenant nation. And now that He was going to come and to dwell with His people in a more permanent form, the book of Hebrews indicates that He might have come by taking the form of angels or by taking on the nature of angels. And if he had done that, there would be no birth in a filthy stable and there would be no lying in a manger and there would be no labor and travail or messy afterbirth and there would be no breastfeeding and there would be no swaddling clothes. If he came by taking on him the nature of angels, then maybe those pictures of the nativity scenes would be more accurate and the halos would be more fitting. But verily, verse 16 says, he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. The miracle of the incarnation is that God the Son took on him the very flesh and blood of human nature. The very flesh and blood of the Virgin Mary specifically. 
Now we have to be somewhat careful here and allow for the mysterious work of the Holy Spirit who brought about this conception. We can get puzzled with our modern minds if we think too much about the specifics of genetics and DNA and how this all worked out according to our scientific understanding of of the beginning of life and the development of children in the womb and so on and so forth. And yet, we do have to understand that the Holy Spirit very much operated upon and worked upon the very flesh and blood of the Virgin Mary. We might say he took one of her eggs and he wrought upon it the miracle of conception such that God was the father of this child, the eternal father of this child, and yet the mother of this child was Mary. And then from an embryo, barely visible to the human eye, this child grew until you could spot a tiny head and tiny eyes and tiny fingers and tiny toes, or at least you would have been able to spot them if there were ultrasounds in those days and you could look inside the womb. And eventually this child growing in Mary's womb developed to the age where he was no longer dependent on his mother's body for survival and so he emerged out into the world And unlike the children's song that says no crying he makes, the first thing that the child Jesus did when he was born is he cried out in order to get his lungs to function and in order to kickstart his breathing. And he cried out also because the world that he came into was cold and spacious in comparison to the dark and warm interior of his mother's womb. And then this child who is the person of the Son of God come into flesh, was held in the arms of a young woman who may have been no older than 15 or 16 years old. And God the Son experienced infancy and childhood, just like His brothers whom He came to save. Now, I belabor the details a bit because it helps us to understand exactly and precisely what took place in the Incarnation. There's an old error that was taught by some of the Anabaptists in the days of the Reformation. These Anabaptists were troubled by the idea that the perfect, sinless Son of God could be really the Son of Mary, of her flesh and blood. And their solution to this problem was to say that Mary actually was more like a surrogate mother of Jesus. And they would say that God the Son did not really assume Mary's flesh and blood, did not really assume Mary's genetic material. How could He? Because Mary was a sinful person just like anybody else. Maybe you remember that the Roman Catholic Church also has a solution to this problem. They say that, well, Mary wasn't a sinless person after all, and she was a a perfect sinless vessel in which the Son of God could be conceived and brought forth. And that's where they get their idea of the immaculate conception of Mary herself. These Anabaptists were reacting against that and saying, no, Mary was not immaculate. She was not perfect. She was a sinner just like anybody else. So how could the Son of God be conceived from her very flesh and blood? And they denied that he was. Mary was simply a womb in which the Son of God was brought to term, more or less. 
But maybe you see the problem with this idea. If God the Son did not take on the flesh and blood of the Virgin Mary, then you have to ask the question, what is he? What is he? They say that God made a new man out of whole cloth, just like he made Adam in the beginning out of the dust and breathed into him the breath of life. So God made a new human nature and he united the person of the Son of God to that new human nature and put it in the womb of the Virgin Mary. But then what is he? He's not a descendant of Adam. He's not a descendant of Abraham. He's not really a human being. He's something else. And he's not like his brethren in all things, as the word of God says, if that's true. So we must understand what happened. The Holy Spirit operated on the flesh and blood of the Virgin Mary and united the Son of God to her, to human nature. And so that the child who was born, though he, though he was God in the flesh, was also the son of Mary. And as the son of Mary was the descendant of David and the descendant of Abraham and the descendant of Adam, part of the family tree of the human race. And that's why it was a humiliation for him. He was made even lower than the angels, the writer to Hebrews says. And born into this world just like any other baby. Jesus, therefore, is like his brothers in all things, the Lord's Day says. By the operation of the Holy Ghost, he was made of the flesh and blood of the Virgin Mary, that he might also be the true seed of David, like unto his brethren in all things, sin accepted. Now, I think when we read that phrase, we tend to zero in on the exception like unto his brethren in all things, sin accepted. And we'll get to that in a moment. And that exception is important. But let's not shortchange what is meant by all things. Jesus had a real human nature. And that means that he was fundamentally human and that nothing that is fundamentally human was alien to him. He was like his brothers in all things. A real man. Which means that Jesus had a childhood. When we read the story of the New Testament, we find Jesus as a baby being born. And then we jump right ahead to the time when he's a man being baptized and beginning his earthly ministry. But don't forget, Jesus had a childhood. God the Son in the flesh had a childhood. Some of you are five years old. Or seven. Or ten. God the Son, as a man, was once a five-year-old boy. And then a seven-year-old boy. And then a ten-year-old boy. And as a boy, he had to do chores in his parents' house. Maybe he had to clear the table after supper. And his adoptive father, Joseph, was a carpenter. 
He worked with his hands, worked with wood. And maybe sometimes the boy Jesus watched his father make things and maybe learned some of the skills of carpentry just like any other boy would do living in his father's house. Jesus went to school. Now, it probably wasn't a school with desks with a hood that lifts up where you can stick all your books and school supplies. And there probably wasn't a bell that rang to signal when recess is over. And there probably wasn't such a thing as recess. But there were teachers in those days called Levites whose job was to teach the children. And they would go to the families and to the villages and they would teach the children. And so Jesus would have sat down with other boys his age and he would have recited the verses from Scripture that he was made to memorize, like the Shema in Deuteronomy 4 or Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord, our, the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy might. And Jesus grew up. He got stronger over time. And he learned things. Think about this. He learned things that he didn't know before. That sounds strange to our ears because we know that Jesus is the Son of God with a divine nature that knows everything. As the Son of God with a divine nature, Jesus knows every bird that chirps. And he knows every bug that's crawling on the ground. And he knows every idle word that men speak, which he will call into judgment on the day of wrath. And yet, Luke 2, verse 52 says that Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Though God never changes, Jesus changed in his real human flesh and blood. Though God never learns anything because he doesn't have to learn anything, Jesus learned. He learned how to use language, learned how to use grammar, learned other skills with his real human brain and his real human hands. And Jesus suffered. And that was really the whole point, wasn't it? That's why it would not do for the Son of God to take on the nature of angels or to take on the nature of something else. He had to be made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, according to verse 9. For it became Him, verse 10, for whom are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons unto glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. Jesus was not like a superman who walked around with bullets bouncing off of his steel chest. He got colds and fevers or whatever illnesses were common to children in the Near East, in the days in which he lived. 
He was mocked, no doubt, by his peers when he was in school and when he was in the neighborhoods of Nazareth. He had to put up with parents and teachers and other adults who sometimes misjudged situations and treated him unfairly. He felt hunger in his belly if he did not eat something. He got thirsty if he did not drink anything. He felt the sorrow of loss and the turmoil of soul that comes when you stand by the graveside of a friend who has died. He was exhausted and tired after trying to help all of the people who were constantly tugging on him, constantly pulling on him all throughout his earthly ministry, seeking his virtue to heal their diseases and to open their eyes, fighting and bickering and acting like sheep without a shepherd, arguing with him, not listening to him, not hearing his words, talking back to him, being wise in their own eyes one moment, full of self-righteousness and indignation, and then the other moment, terrified. He could get exhausted, tired. And Jesus experienced all of this within the confines and limitations of the flesh and blood that he received from his mother Mary. He was like us in all things. But we must also now see how he was unlike his brothers. Which is equally important. And Jesus is unlike his brothers in that he faced everything that it means to be human without any sin in him. He was like unto his brethren in all things, sin accepted. Now to let the impact of that sink in, we need to remember that Jesus lived and operated in the same world in which we live and operate. Jesus did not live in the Garden of Eden. Jesus did not live in a place where everything he touched sort of naturally turned to gold and everything he did sort of naturally went well without any work and without any effort. Jesus lived in a post-fall, cursed world. Jesus lived in a world where towers collapse and fall on people to crush them and kill them like the Tower of Siloam that collapsed during the days of his earthly ministry. Jesus lived in a world where the pressures of life and the weight of His calling bore down on Him. Jesus lived in a hard world. A world of darkness. A world that decays over time. A world that gets corrupted. And in that dark and fallen world, Jesus did not live among angels. The people that Jesus ran into were people who were sinners. Unlike Him, they were sinners. Constantly sinning against Him and constantly sinning against one another. Even His disciples followed Him around, constantly arguing, constantly bickering. Who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom? I'm going to have a higher place than you, Peter. No, no, I'm going to be the better one, said James and John. Constantly trying to one-up each other. Constantly trying to get the edge on one another. And then there were the scribes and the Pharisees who prayed loudly in the temple before men. 
but behind the scenes devoured widows' houses. And Jesus could see right through their external show, see right down into their hearts. Not merely because He was the Son of God, although that's true, but He could intuit what those men were all about. He could see them for what they were. And those scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, attacked Jesus, misrepresented Him, tried to catch Him in His words, denied His claims, even though He proved and demonstrated every claim He made by doing signs and wonders that were obviously from God. They were not open to hearing what He had to say because they approached Him with minds already made up, with hearts already hardened, with unbelief and sin. They were the righteous ones, they said. Jesus, He's an imposter. He's a fraud. Jesus had to deal with that. Sinful opposition from unbelievers. Sinful bickering from His own followers. And behind all of this was the devil who was constantly hounding Jesus all His life long. Satan appeared to Jesus openly at the beginning, tempting Him, trying to get Him to turn off the path of the Messiah. And Jesus resisted Him. And the devil went away for a while. But that does not mean the devil now let Jesus be. And that for the rest of Jesus' ministry, there was no devil trying to subvert Jesus' work. No, the devil was relentless. He was always there. His forked tongue was the author of every word of challenge that came from the Pharisees and from the scribes and from the Sadducees. His evil and subversive plans echoed out of the mouths of His own disciples sometimes so that Jesus once had to turn around on the spot and rebuke Peter to the face and say, Get thee behind me, Satan! That's the world in which Jesus was operating. Those are the people that Jesus was interacting with. And for us, in our corrupted human nature, when facing that kind of pressure, giving in to sin and temptation serves as a kind of release, doesn't it? It does. Now, it's only a momentary release. And it's a release that ends up tightening the devil's noose around our necks in the end. But it's a release valve. It's always more difficult to continue the fight with sword drawn and to press on against opposition. To battle. It's easier to lay down the sword and to retreat. But Jesus never did that. Not once. Not even a little bit. He faced pressures, opposition, hatred. All of it would crush any of us, leading us into despair. Sinful despair. Bitterness. Hedonism. Pleasure-seeking. Anything to make the pain go away. But Jesus let it all fall on His shoulders day after day, night after night, never yielding to the temptation, never attempting to drown His sorrows in a bottle of booze, 
never letting anger and frustration get the better of him so that he snapped. Never despairing. Never giving up hope. He grieved. That's true. He cried real tears. And when he had a brief moment to lie down, even if he was in a stormy boat, thus rocking around in the waves, he collapsed exhausted in sleep. But he never sinned. Not once. And that makes him profoundly unlike us. So profoundly unlike us that there's a part of us that struggles to see how he could really be human. (laughs) Sin is so natural to us, we just assume that this is what human nature is. Is fundamentally. it's, It's what it is. It is sinful. But that's because all we know is the corrupted human nature that we inherited from Adam. Jesus did not have that corruption. And yet he bore all of the pressures of life. But maybe even we have experienced just a tiny bit, beloved, of what Jesus' entire life was like. As the power of the Spirit of Christ has gone to work on you, to cleanse you from the evil influences of sin, and as you have begun in a small way to resist temptation rather than to cave into it, as you have stood your spiritual ground, in the fight against sin and against the devil, it hurts. Doesn't it? It hurts. It's painful. It's like dying. It's like being crucified. Well, that was Jesus' entire lived experience. Only it was far, far worse than that. But there's another important way in which Jesus is unlike us. He's unlike his brothers because even though he became a real man, he nevertheless remains true and eternal God. Now that's the mystery of the incarnation. And it's a truth that really is beyond us and will always be beyond us because we will never know what it's like to be God. And if we don't know what it's like to be God, how could we know what it's like for God to become a man? If we were to comprehend that, then we would be God ourselves. And that will never be. But just consider what this means. It's one thing for God as God to observe all the rebellion and all of the sin and all of the unbelief from a distance, as it were, like in the days of Noah when God from heaven looked down and He saw that all the the, the imaginations of the heart of men was only evil continually. It's one thing for God to deal with it and to see it as God. But for Him now to come down and to witness this and to experience it through the eyes of a man, a man who is the express image of God's person in our flesh, to come down into the darkness and then to see sin and its effects, to sit across the table from prostitutes 
and thieves and manipulators and habitual liars and to get spit in the face and to be beaten with rods and whips and to see the cruelty in the eyes of those who are opposing Him and to hear the venom dropping from their lips as they say, crucify Him, crucify Him. Do we have any idea, beloved? Do we have any idea what sort of suffering the captain of our salvation endured? God the Son, made like us in all things, sin accepted. This is humiliation. And it is humiliation such that we can scarcely even begin to imagine it. Beloved, have you ever felt like the people around you were not treating you the way that you you felt like you ought to be treated? Not giving you the respect that you deserve or the attention that you think you ought to have? Why does he look at me that way? Why won't she talk to me? And we ruminate on it. And we get troubled and upset. But now God, the majestic, glorious God who created the world, who is worthy of all honor, glory, and majesty, comes down here and He endures gossip and slander. Imagine looking God in the face and 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 saying to him, you deserve to die. You don't even deserve life, much less that I should show you any attention. You deserve to die. You're a wicked person. A wicked person. We don't want anything to do with you. Crucify him. And experience that. And he didn't even open his mouth to defend himself. But he accepted it. He accepted blame. He accepted humiliation. Willingly. Not because there wasn't a defense. Not because he couldn't, with one word, silence everybody who was accusing him and vindicate his own righteousness. He accepted blame and he accepted humiliation and he accepted suffering even at the hands of men, wicked, vile men. Because he accepted responsibility for you and for me, beloved, and for everyone who believes in him. Every one of his people accepted our blame, accepted our humiliation our death and he did that because he loves you wherefore in all things verse 17 it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make reconciliation for the sins of the people your sins my sins. For in that he himself hath suffered being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted, that is, to help them. 
and to help them in the way that only the Son of God can help them, that is to save them and deliver them. And it's not just that he wants to do this, beloved, but it's that he's done it. And he's going to keep doing it until every one of his people comes home. And that's why all of this matters so much. And learning all of these stories about Jesus and all of the doctrinal details that they imply isn't just an exercise of our brains. What matters with regard to our eternal welfare and eternal salvation and matters with regard to our relationship with God as we live in the world today. There's profit in this. Profit in the incarnation for everyone who believes in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Jesus did all of this because this was the only way. This was the only way that our sin could be dealt with and dealt with in such a way that God was honored and His justice truly satisfied so that our sins could not rise up against us again and accuse us again. And the Lord's Day is specific in the way it applies this and the way it speaks of the prophet of Christ's conception and nativity. The question in question 76 is, What profit dost thou receive by Christ's holy conception and nativity? That he is our mediator and with his innocence and perfect holiness covers in the sight of God my sins wherein I was conceived and brought forth. The Lord's Day zeroes in on those sins in which we were conceived and brought forth. Now, why is that? And I believe the Lord's Day is addressing something that every child of God deals with in their lives. And it's something that the older we get, the more and more this becomes a burden to us. And that is the sins of youth. The sins of youth. The hurtful things that we said and did when we were children to put down others, our peers. The bullying. The resentment, maybe, that we had against the rules of our parents and the rebellion. The lusts that we remember in our souls. The disrespect that we showed to our teachers. And sometimes when we think about the sins of youth, we ask ourselves, Does this person remember this or that thing that I said? Does that person remember this or that thing that I did? And we might add, does God remember? I know He does. He saw me. He heard me. He was there. And He didn't only hear the word, but He knew what was in my heart when I said it. And when we think about that, it can be very troubling. So the Lord's Day says, look, Jesus did not only live and die as a man, an adult, but he was conceived and brought forth into this dark and sinful world. And he suffered already as a child, as an infant. And he suffered as a youth, as a teenager, as a young adult. And the righteousness that he earned for us before God is therefore a righteousness that applies to our entire personal history. Not just the older version. Or not just the part of us that was conscious 
at our conversion if we were brought to conversion later in life. But the younger part of us as well. He covers the sins of youth. He covers the sins in which we were conceived and brought forth. The sin that is ours in Adam. It's all covered. And therefore you need not worry what people may remember about your former self. Maybe you need to go reconcile if there's still some open wound festering that hasn't been dealt with. But you need not fear what men think of you because of your past. You need not fear that God is going to call up some, something that you did from long ago. Something maybe that you've forgotten all about, but that was a horrific sin. It's covered. It's dealt with. And there's profit for us in that. But it doesn't matter. This truth of the incarnation doesn't matter simply because there's profit in it for us. It matters because Jesus Christ is our brother. Isn't that an amazing thing? God is not ashamed to call you brother or sister in Christ. And so we want to worship him, don't we? We want to look up to him the way young children look up to their older sibling, but way more than that. Look at what he's done for you. Look at what he is for you, beloved. Glorify him. Glorify him as the Redeemer. Glorify him as your older brother, the captain of your salvation. God in flesh. Our Emmanuel. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father who art in heaven, we thank thee for the truth of the gospel. And we thank thee, O Father, for the way these truths get right down into the mud and muck of our own lives. For, O Father, we live in a cursed and fallen world, a broken world. And we ourselves are, are weighed down by our own sins and the feeling of the shame of those sins. And it comforts us to know then that Jesus, the Son of God, came into this very world as it is. And he lived as a man among men and is not ashamed to be called our brothers, but suffered all the things that he suffered, that our sins might be covered in his holiness and his righteousness before thy sight. And we, we, we glorify thee, Father, for giving us our mediator who will always dwell with us in our flesh, in whose face one day when we arrive in glory, we will see thy face, the face of God in man. We thank thee, Father, for him. And we pray, strengthen our faith and give us the grace to walk with him every day. In Jesus' name we pray.